My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be one of my friends just trying to make you some money. My job, not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. It's really messy out there. One of my absolute favorite CEOs said that phrase to me this morning, and it's been stuck in my head ever since. Yeah, it's messy out there. Could we on state days like today? And Dow inched up 82 points. S&P dipped 0.07%. NASDAQ declined 0.03%. And actually, I think I know why it's been so messy. We're at a moment where there are so many cross-currents and undertones that we need to accept the mess, but also have the conviction that not every company in every sector is performing at the same level. Some of them are doing okay, and even if their cohort keeps getting blasted almost daily, they might be worth buying. Now, way back when I first got in the business at Goldman Sachs, we're talking about 40 years ago, I was told that 50% of a stock's performance came from its prowess, or lack thereof, and the other 50% comes from its sector. But those were the good old days, before the rise of index funds, the proliferation of ETFs that do their best to homogenize or unhomogenizable the which is the companies, right? They homogenize the publicly traded companies. They do it like, uh, like they're fungible bottles of milk coming from a variety of cows. I mean, these days, doesn't it feel like up to 90% of its stock's performance on a given day comes from its sector? Something on down days feels like a heavy gravitational pull. And you know what? This, it is starting to drive me crazy. So tonight I want you to remind you that no two stocks are truly alike. And more important, the sector analysis everyone lives by these days is often the travesty of a mockery of a sham. On days like today, I am so steamed. I feel like opening the valves and spewing the scalding water on the purveyors of these sector ETFs, which cluster unlike companies to gaff unsuspecting investors who are looking for diversification, or at least the illusion of diversification. These ETFs have, to some degree, ruined the values of individual management performances and made it much harder to make money owning individual stocks, which has always been a great way for Americans to make money. It can still be done, though. Let's go over a way to do it. I want to give you some examples. There's a perception that all packaged food companies are the same. You hear that all the time, the CPGs, they call them. Uh, They're all hung by inflation. They all have supply chain problems. The litany of negatives that have kept their stocks from being attractive for a long time. I say wrong. This morning, a company that we all know, we just have to go into any pantry in this country, General Mills reported something. It was nothing short of spectacular. Big G gave you organic net sales up an astounding 30% with operating profit of up, of up 85%. Even better, the company expects that the growth to accelerate and they're putting through a 6% dividend boost. This is everything we want from individual stocks, isn't it? It's fantastic. You know, I mean, I just love this. How did General Mills pull it off? It reshuffled the portfolio with an emphasis on the highest end pet food, which is the one that we used, right? You probably do, too, if you really take care of your pet, up 22%, as well as food service up 25%. It was remarkable. And you know what's so funny? Excuse me. These are just as good as they've always been. Remember I used to throw away the rest of the stuff and eat those? Just mentioning. Now, we know Kellogg created a lot of value when it announced its breakup plans, but General Mills is doing exactly what we want from a company. While the stock jumped 6% to a new high today, I think it would be a heck of a lot higher if it weren't being dragged down by the market-wide negativity. This was an amazing quarter from these guys. Oh, when I was young. 
little reminiscent. Then there's Disney. This stock has been a nightmare ever since Netflix reported that miserable quarter. Is Disney really just Disney Plus? Is that all it is? That's certainly how it trades. But let's think for a second. If it's just Disney Plus, then you can understand why Netflix brought it down, right? But, you know, when you go to the Netflix theme park, what happens? Who greets you? Number four, five, six from the Squid Game? (laughs) Disney gets no credit whatsoever for what is arguably its most important business. It's parks in Florida, California, Paris, Tokyo, Shanghai, Hong Kong. People go to those parks because they love the franchises. Does Netflix have anything that's even remotely comparable? Could they build a park around Queen's Gambit with a ch- maybe a chess-themed set of rides? How about a Tinder swindler attraction where someone uses your Amex to go on a shopping spree? Other than Stranger Things, I can't think of anything that would be much of a draw for a Netflix theme park. I mean, give me a break. Do you know that Disney also has five count on five cruise ships? Today, Morgan Stanley put out a pitiless slam job on Carnival that was savage enough to make reservation holders worry about their deposits. Do you think anyone's concerned about getting their money back from an aborted Disney cruise? And by the way, I am pressing my wife to go on one, just so you know. Uh, and we're going to go on one. I Believe me. It's just that she has to get a little more open-minded. Oh, and I'm not even talking I'm not even talking about that theme park on the Colorado-Texas corridor, the one I dreamed up in last night's show. Memo to Disney, put it in New Mexico. It's already, they call it the land of enchantment, for heaven's sake. And I will not charge you for this amazing idea when you do it. Then there's Meta Platforms, the former Facebook. These guys have a major transformation going on with CEO Mark Zuckerberg, a proven winner, by the way, saying that Reels, his TikTok killer, is on the upswing and the much maligned metaverse is going to be operational in a very short period of time and really be exciting. I agree with Zuckerberg. He's easy to agree with. He's a smart fella. But Meta gets downgraded with the rest of the Internet stocks as though it's nothing more than a struggling digital advertising company. But the most egregious, the most unsatisfying and aggravating is the lumping together of the semiconductor stocks. Today, we get some heavy downgrades and price target slashes of the semiconductor group ahead of Micron's quarter, which will be awful. I'm stipulating that tomorrow. After some Intel price cuts, uh, I was ready for the negative pin action in Kramer fave AMD and NVIDIA. And sure enough, I got it. But you know what? Even I wasn't ready for the down in these stocks. Lisa Su, the brilliant CEO of AMD, is maybe the greatest turnaround artist of all time, built their company to a powerhouse, yet its stock rolls over as easily as the number one pin hitting the three. You know, one hits the three. Oh, you don't bowl? You want to try it. It's fun. Anyway, I think it's crazy. Not only is Sue scorching it in high-performance computing, she's now got exposure to the Internet of Things, aerospace, telco infrastructure, all because of that terrific Xilinx steel. If you're pigeonholing AMD as a nothing more than a maker of processors and graphic chips for PCs, you're going to miss the big story. And that story is very good, especially at a 52-week low. Cut in half, by the way. The only thing worse than the sell-off in AMD was the pullback in NVIDIA, which was brought down by the same dumb semiconductor ETFs. Drives me nuts because NVIDIA just announced a revolutionary partnership with Siemens, the German industrial titan, to bring artificial intelligence to the factory floor via the use of digital twins. I spoke to both companies today on the phone from Germany, and I can tell you this is, wow, look at that. This is not some idle partnership between two companies that ends the moment it's mentioned. Siemens using NVIDIA's Omniverse, which is an artificial intelligence-enabled virtual world engine, plans to revolutionize how trillions of dollars are spent on making and modifying plant and equipment. 
The last time we were at NVIDIA, CEO Jensen Wong showed us the concept of the digital twin, the simulation of a plant or a product that can improve on the current iteration with an eye toward being much more efficient. And waste. Think of it as the next frontier of computer-aided design. It's a simulation so realistic that it can stand in for real-world prototypes. Do you think that technology should be lumped in with Ethereum cards? Do you think it's the same thing to have a bunch of gamers using your cards as versus being teamed up with Accenture, Amazon Web Services, Microsoft, SAP, all of which are joining forces together to use this? People write NVIDIA off as a consumer play, but it's increasingly an enterprise-oriented chip maker, and that's a much better business. Look, Frito-Lay has more to do with semiconductors at this point than NVIDIA. Frito-Lay makes chips. Uts? Hence, this is NVIDIA is a stock that I like too much, and no two stocks are alike is what I like to say. Look, I'm not guaranteeing the bottom in Disney or Meta or AMD or NVIDIA. But the bottom line is these stocks are not bottles of milk, and you and I are not cows. Stocks are all different. So some of the milk, if you will, is a heck of a lot fresher with no sell-by date, just a buy date. May I please go to Chase in South Carolina? Chase. Booyah, Jim. It's a privilege and honor to talk to you today. Right back at you, Chase. What's happening? Not much. Not too long ago, you gave some favorable thoughts about Coca-Cola, but I was really interested in what you thought about PepsiCo for the long. Well, you know what? This is actually really easy. First of all, I do love I think. I think James, I, I, look, I, I think Coca-Cola is incredibly well run, and James Quincy's terrific. And by the way, I've had the Jack and Coke Zero and the Jack and Diet Coke, and they are killer. But, but Ramon LaGuarta, who runs PepsiCo, 2.7% yield, doing a remarkable job, it's good too. But I do prefer Coca-Cola here because of that incredible open-mindedness they have about Jack and Coke, because that's going to be monstrously good. Tastes great. Less filling. Gene and Marilyn. Gene. Hey, Jim, thank you for taking my call. Absolutely. I uh, am wearing my Philadelphia Eagles Super Bowl championship T-shirt today because it reminds me of yesteryear. And speaking of yesteryear, what? Has Don't happened? worry, man. Just five, it's just five years. Howie's coming back. He's got us. Howie's got us, man. He's got us with AJ. I am not concerned. But, but go ahead. I'm sorry. I appreciate you saying that. Um, I... I'm amazed that these stocks that are all down 70, 80% remind me of 2000 when you could pick up a QQQ for $20. Can you explain Shopify, DraftKings? What's going on? Well, look, I, you know, the, the Shopify guy did a little split there. Um, now, I, look, here, here's what I think is happening. I think there's a belief that, that Internet e-commerce has slowed and slowed dramatically. And that all we want to do is go out and spend. We do not want to sit around and wait for our Amazon boxes. And you know what? I think it is going to take at least two quarters before we don't feel that way. All right, stocks are all different. Not every company in every sector is performing the same. Oh, man, money tonight. Pinterest announced that its co-founder and CEO would be transitioning. Executive chairman, Google executive Bill Reddy, smart fella. We're taking the hill. I'm sitting down with both men to get the latest on the transition about what the future could hold. Then commodity prices are rolling over, giving the inflationistas a potential sigh of relief. But how low can they go? I'm going to go off the charts to find out. And with recession fears top of mind, what is the state of small, medium-sized businesses in the U.S.? I'm getting a read from the CEO of Paycheck. So stay with Kramer.
Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. What do we do with the beaten down social media stocks that are very much out of style in the Wall Street fashion show, even though I think they're tremendous buys? I take Pinterest, the virtual pin board slash social network platform. I mean, here's a profitable company that's seen its stock get crushed with all things growth. But yesterday, Pinterest announced something big. Their chairman and CEO is stepping back to become executive chairperson while bringing in a new CEO, a financial tech veteran, Bill, Bill Reddy. Hey, by the way, this guy's coming from Google, and he was in charge of commerce and payments. Wow. Now, I think this makes a lot of sense. Right now, Pinterest makes the bulk of its money from digital advertising, but they want to pivot to buy, become something more like, like more of a shopping platform because this is a site where people go to find stuff that they might want to buy. This is a difficult market to own something like Pinterest, but I'm liking this pivot. So let's take a closer look with Ben Silverman. He's the co-founder, executive chairman of Pinterest, whom we met at his office too long ago. And Bill Reddy, he's the new CEO. Gentlemen, welcome to Mad Money. Thanks for having us, Jim. Yeah, thank you, Jim. Okay, so I, I got to ask you, Ben, I knew you love your job. And when I saw you, it was so much fun. And it was just pure uh, joy to go to your offices. You're making that just huge sales, $2.5 billion. Now it's going to be nearly $3 billion. It's profitable. Is this really the time to leave a CEO? Well, first, Jim, uh, Thanks again for having us. Um, look, I love Pinterest. I've loved, I've loved running it. Um, and I'm really excited today uh, about having Bill step in as our new CEO. Um, I think that he's got a ton of qualifications that are really going to help us accelerate the momentum we already have and go, as you said, from a place where people are getting inspired to a place where they can get inspired and take action and buy the things. So I'm really excited about it. And I'm excited to stay involved in a new role uh, as executive chair. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, it's funny. Uh, I know about Pinterest from my kids, from my wife. I mean, everybody knows it. That's what you do. So I, I'm going to tell you, Bill, and put you on the spot here. I was, told, I was going texting with my daughter today. We went to Parsons. She's a baker. Okay. And I said, what do you think of it? She goes, oh, well, you know, I love my mood boards, whether it be for decorating my house or planning, my wedding, planning a wedding or finding inspiration for next year. So I said, have you ever bought anything on Pinterest? And she says, hell no. I mean, almost as if. Don't you realize, Dad, you don't buy things on Pinterest? Yet all those categories are fantastic categories to press a button and buy something. Can that change? Yeah, so thank you, Jim. It's a great question. And I think Pinterest is a really uniquely positioned platform. And I think it's uniquely positioned because it has tremendous inspiration and discovery on the platform, as you were just mentioning, and across a number of different categories. But it also has high intent. So people are there for a purpose. They're not discovering these things on accident while they're doing something else. They're actually there for that purpose. And so there's both inspiration, discovery, and intent. And as Ben was just describing, there's a lot we can do to help them take more action on that intent, whether that action is making or doing or in some cases buying. And there's a variety of ways that we can do that. They may not necessarily entail even a buy button all the time, but how do you get more closely connected to a place where you can take action? And so I think there's tremendous potential to help people do more on the platform and do it in a positive, engaging way uh, that, again, I think is quite unique uh, for, for Pinterest as a platform. Well, 
Well, uh, Bill, let me just follow up on that. Uh, would a mood board um, be uh, cheapened in any way by something that people would buy? I mean, that people I know now because I've researched this mood board concept, they kind of like the fact that it's not for buying, so to speak. Well, I think it's a great point that, you know, it's a it's a forum that people love engaging with. And I think the thing that we have to make sure we do is make sure that we make it easy for people to take action when and how they want to take action. And I think that is something that you know, Ben and I have talked about this a lot. I think he's heard it from Pinterest users uh, for, for years that they want to be able to take action on these things. Uh, I've used Pinterest for designing a home, for planning birthday wow. parties. Uh, and these are all things where you get great ideas and you don't want necessarily uh, sort of buying to be shoved in your face. But when you see something that you want to take action on, you, you want to be able to go get to the way that you're going to do that. And I think, again, that's a unique thing that Pinterest has is both the inspiration, the discovery, and the intent in one platform. And we've got to mix in more ability to take action. I totally agree. I'm, I'm bad. I want to ask you just in terms philosophically, I, I regard you as a total inspiration. I mean, you came from Nebraska. You come out wide. You do this thing. Uh, everybody loves it. You had at one point 478 million people and you had 431 million people only in Wall Street would a decline from 478 to 431 million be regarded as something suboptimal. 430 million is just a huge congratulations, Ben. But I've got to ask you, is Wall Street, did Wall Street make your job tiresome? <laughs> Look, Jim, I mean, we care a lot about all of our investors, and so it's one key stakeholder. Um, but the thing I wake up doing every day, the thing that Bill and I talked a lot about when we talked about taking this role, is how do we just make an amazing experience uh, for consumers? And I'm really excited. You know, the company has got a great pipeline of uh, new products that are coming out from our investors and creators to some of the shopping things um, that, that Bill talked about. We just acquired the Yes, which is a fantastic startup, mm -hmm. which will speed things up. And also, I think that we're in a really good position. You know, we more than doubled revenue since the beginning of the pandemic. Last year, we were profitable. And so I'm excited to take those uh, resources and invest them into an even better product. And I think that'll make everyone, starting with the users, but including the investors, uh, really excited over time. Well, but let me ask you, though, in your last letter, you know, I love your letters. You wrote, in Q1 of 2022, we continue to experience year-over-year engagement declines, primarily due to pandemic-influenced growth in the year-ago quarter. Everybody gets that. But then, as well as lower search traffic, largely driven by Google's algorithm change in November 2021, you were sitting with a person who may have been involved with that algorithm change. How have you guys hashed that out together? Well, you know, we haven't been talking a lot about his last job. We've been talking a lot about his current job Fair. and what we're doing going forward. And I just want to tell you, I couldn't be more excited uh, to, to welcome Bill and bring, bring some of that experience and also, uh, you know, some experience running global technology companies, driving innovation on behalf of customers at a really big scale. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and, and Jim, as you mentioned, like I've, I've had the privilege to have built and grown uh, a number of, of, of great platforms. And when I look at Pinterest, I see something that I think is quite special and quite unique. And you, you've got users coming to the platform for daily inspiration, looking for those things that they might not be finding other places. And take shopping as, as an example. I think for the last 20 plus years of e-commerce, e-commerce is solving for a lot, a lot more for buying mm -hmm. than for shopping. And so when you think about how people have shopped in the real world, um, you know, uh, forever and ever, a huge part of that was inspiration and discovery. And there was a joyfulness to it and a delight to it that I don't think has been solved for in the digital world. And I think Pinterest has a great opportunity to bring that part of the equation that users are already coming to Pinterest for today 
and marry that up with more ability to take action. And I think, again, that's something that users have organic demand for that from the Pinterest platform. Mm -hmm. And as we bring in more and more of that, I think it's something that's going to really resonate with, with Pinterest users. Right, well, let me ask a bit moment with this question. I know that PayPal is interested. Of course, Bill worked at PayPal. I know that Microsoft is interested. Uh, those discussions never really went anywhere, and I have to presume won't now that you're having that transition to executive chairman. It's fair discussion, fair uh, point. Yeah, it, it, so I'll take that one, which is, okay. you know, I, I'm coming to Pinterest because I think it has a great, a, a great potential for a long-term enduring company. And, you know, there's going to be, lots of opportunities for how we can build the company. I think looking at the uh, organic innovation inside the company, uh, the way the company is leveraging, you know, not only build, but buy and partner as well. You know, right. buying uh, the Yes recently, partnering with Shopify and WooCommerce. So I think there's a number of dimensions for how to grow the business. But I'm coming here because I think it has great prospects as a long-term enduring company and solving for something that is unique and isn't fully solved for elsewhere. And again, I am voting with my feet that I think it's a fantastic place to be. Excellent. Well, look, I wish uh, both of you luck. I love your company very, very much. You've always been great to add money. I hope we feel that we've been fair to you. I want to I thank uh, Ben Silverman, who's just a hero of mine, as I told you the day I met you, and, uh, and Bill Reddy, who's the C new CEO of Pinterest. Uh, and remember, Ben's not going anywhere. He's still going to be executive chairman. So we intend to see him again. Bad Money back after the break. Thank you, gentlemen. Coming up, it's a commodity confab. Kramer with the latest off the charts. Next. If we're ever going to get this inflation thing under control, we need commodity prices to come down, way down. Fortunately, many of these things have already started rolling over. I've been talking about that lately, and there's a good chance this is just the beginning. And that's why tonight we're going off the chart with the help of Carly Garner. She's that brilliant technician who's the co-founder of DeCarly Trading, the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading, and she is our resident commodities expert, and she's been nailing them. In her view, commodity rallies are inherently unstable. We've had a multi-year bull market here, but she thinks that's produced a ton of complacency. According to history, commodity rallies tend to be incredibly compelling, but they're also temporary, almost by definition. See, if you're buying copper or oil or steel or wheat, it's not like you're investing in the stock. Commodities don't pay dividends. They don't have buybacks. As Carter sees it, that makes them very unattractive to longer-term investors. Instead, they're a magnet for shorter-term traders. You know I don't like shorter-term trading. That's why, historically, commodity markets tend to be extremely volatile. And when a commodity boom turns into a commodity bust, well, it can take newer players by surprise. So now, let's go into this. Take a look at the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index. This is comprised of 24 different exchange-traded futures contracts across five sectors over the last 50 years. Interesting picture. Gardner points out that commodity prices tend to trade sideways over the long run, through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you had a pretty tight trading range. Then the commodity index moved up to new range in the 2000s, but that's where it stayed. Even after the recent commodity boom, this index is basically just back to where it was trading in the last boom before the financial crisis hit. That's why Garner's a big believer in the idea that commodity rallies almost never have staying power. 
there are powerful deflationary forces here, like the adoption of new technology that makes it cheaper to farm, or, you know, deer's got that, or produce oil and mines for metals. We've seen that from Caterpillar, from Schlumberger. In 2007, we thought the world was running out of fossil fuels. By 2014, the rise of fracking meant we had a massive oil and gas glut. Just as important, when commodities get too expensive, the miners and farmers and drillers tend to increase production. As more supply comes online, prices come back down, especially if the Fed hits the brakes on the economy to tamp down uh, or, or demand, as they're doing exactly right now. So for Garner, every commodity rally is basically a commodity collapse waiting to happen. I'm repeat that. Commodity rally is a commodity collapse waiting to happen. Now I want you to zoom in the last 20 years of action in the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index to get a better sense of what we're talking about here. There's a boom, then a bust, then a boom, then a bust. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Look at this. These changes of trajectory often coincide with the Federal Reserve's behavior. That makes sense. It's about tight money and, and loose money. And, hey, if you want to say this time is different, Garner reminds us that every one of these past commodity bull markets seemed incredibly compelling at the time. They were super cycles. In 2008, there were tons of people who thought gas prices would keep going up forever until the whole economy fell off a cliff. Oil peaked at just under 250 in 2008. If someone came on here when it was 150 and said, you know what, it's headed to 30, they would have been laughed off the air, yet that's exactly what happened. In 2011, we had an oil and agricultural boom. That was fueled by the Arab Spring, a series of uprisings and protests against oppressive regimes in the Middle East and North Africa. Those uprisings caused shortages. It felt like higher commodity prices were the new normal. But that was the peak. We were actually headed into a decade-long bear market in commodities. Just incredible. Now, you might think it's, it's crazy to bet against oil here. And I, I got to tell you, I am partial to oil, but, you know, given that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has taken a ton of supply off the Western market. However, you could have said the same thing about Libya in 2011. You would have been dead wrong, even as Libya remains a failed state. In short, Garner thinks that these commodity booms tend to seem a lot more sustainable than they really are. So why don't we talk about individual commodities, because I know you care about them. This is a monthly chart of West Texas intermediate crude futures. Now we're going back 30 years, Okay. Garner points out that oil was in, a, was in a bad place for years before the pandemic. If not for COVID and the war in Ukraine, it would probably still be in a bad place. Look where it was. I mean, this thing was just awful. Uh, once the supply shock wears off, Garner expects we're going to be left with oil prices closer to the long-run equilibrium, which would put it right back here. And by the way, that's what the futures contracts say. If you look out in the out years, it's a level that's acted as a magnet for pricing for the last 20 years. Of course, she's that, that, that's long term. She's not saying it will happen immediately. And I know that because I tell her that I, I've, we have a bunch of oils for the charitable trust. She's not saying it's going to happen immediately. It, it, possibly oil could have a more ups, uh, one more burst upside. She just needs you to understand that commodities can go down as swiftly as they go up. Now, you might think her 50 to 75 dollar price for oil sounds crazy given that governments around the world have turned very hostile on fossil fuels. Garner doesn't think that will last. It's easy for politicians to be pro-environment when oil is cheap. But when gas prices go through the roof, that's a very different story. Plus, there's Russia. It's not like their oil disappeared. They're just selling it to China and India instead of Europe. Sooner or later, Garner thinks the energy market will adjust to the new distribution. Bad news if you own the oil stocks, and I know that, and it's worrisome to me. But very good news for cash-strapped consumers. Next, food is the other big inflation component here that you talk about. So take a gander at the monthly chart of corn prices going back to the 60s. While corn prices have increased gradually over the decades, Gardner points out that it's like a staircase. Corn usually trades in this tight range. Then once every 10 or 20 years, it moves up and step. 
Since 2007, she says corn's mostly traded between 3 and 460, with the exception of some temporary spikes. Could the recent corn rally represent another step higher? Garner says it's possible. But even if that happens, she'd expect the new floor to be around $5. So corn at 7 to $8 a bushel simply isn't going to be the new normal. Why? Because the longer corn prices stay high, the more money farmers will spend boosting production, which only pushes those prices right back down. There's no reason to think that this time would be any different. It just might take a little bit longer because lots of corn has been taken offline in Ukraine. Long story short, Garner's adamant that the commodity bulls have gotten too complacent. This boom and bust cycle is inevitable, and the busts have already begun. Lumber's down more than 60% from its highs. Natural gas down 33% just since June. Oh, early June. Now that central banks around the world have declared war on inflation, that means they've declared war on commodity prices. You can try to fight them, but history says you'll lose. The chart, just interpreted by Carly Garner, suggests the recent commodities boom is not long for the world. She says we can still see some short-term upside, which is on betting with the oils. But long-term, she thinks this bull is about to get slaughtered. And when commodities turn against you, it tends to get real ugly real fast. But boy, will that ever give the Federal Reserve a genuine break. And maybe the stock market, too. Ben in Ohio. Ben. Hey, Mr. Kramer. It's an honor to talk to you. I'm a huge fan. Oh, thank I'm you. One of the- I'm one of the few Gen Z college students that is looking for value instead of mean stocks. All right. My company deals with mining commodities, which theoretically should be doing well during high inflation. However, this company is located in South America, exposing it to political instability, and there's always a chance that Jerome Powell will successfully shut down inflation. The company is Vale, V-A-L-E. Okay, uh, first, I'm glad you're listening. It's great. Uh, I am concerned. It's in Brazil. Uh, Brazil has become very hostile to capital. And so, therefore, I think the stock is just too risky to own. Let's go to Steve in California, please. Steve. Hey, how are you doing? I love your show. Oh, thank you, partner. What's going on? Well, I'm cheating, and I need your help. All right. Um, So, I'm cheating because I've got two stock questions instead of one. One is CF Industries holding. It's sort of like crypto going up and down. I'm wondering if it'll ever go into the uh, hundreds again. Right. And uh, the millionth question about Apple. What do you right, think well, look, I, you know, Apple, I say own it, don't trade it. But the problem here with CF Industries is this industry is boom bust. And when you have boom bust and it's been booming, you are going to get a bust in the fertilizers. No matter what you do, that is what happens because it costs very little money. To get into that business. So let's say sell, sell, sell on that. And be aware that I disagree with Carly on oil because I think that there are reasons why we're not producing as much as I thought we would. But I understand why she would think that we could go back to 50 to 75. Tonight's chartist thinks the recent commodities boom is not long for the world. Time to get prepared because when commodities turn against you, it tends to get real ugly fast. There's too much complacency. Much more mad money head, including my exclusive with paychecks. After reporting a top and bottom line beat this morning, what did the street dislike so much in this quarter that drove today's selling? I'm going to talk to the CEO. Then, how negative is too negative? I'm putting the negativity into context and sharing if it's overdone. And of course, all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. All right, what the heck happened to the stock of paychecks today? Down more than 4% uh, after reporting what sure looked to me like a better than expected quarter. Now, look, up until a couple of months ago, this payroll processor human capital management service provider was one of the most dependable stocks in the market. 
but it's pulled back hard lately, thanks to, of course, worries. And who can blame anybody for a Fed-mandated recession, mass layoffs, so that doesn't help a business that's paid on processing. So when Paychex reported a really good quarter this morning, clean top and bottom line beat, strong guidance, I thought the stock might rebound. Looks like I was too optimistic. The bear seized on a single line in the comms call that the pace of small business job growth slowed in May and then ignored everything else that's going right, like the fact that so far management's seen no sign of a recession. This could be a buying opportunity, but don't take it from me. Let's check in with Marty Musi, the straight shooting chairman and CEO of Paychex, to get a better read on the quarter. Mr. Musi, welcome back to Mad Money. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be here with you. All right, so Marty, I went over the uh, conference call a bunch of times. And other than that one little bit about May, this was an extraordinary quarter, and I believe is an extraordinary quarter. And what I'm trying to do is just ferret out where, where you're just kind of saying, hey, listen, when the Fed raises rates, you have to expect that something bad could happen. Or are you seeing something bad? No, Jim, we're really not seeing anything bad. So it's a real mystery to us as well. You know, we had another consecutive quarter in the fourth of double-digit revenue growth and earnings growth. Um, operating margin of 40% and a fantastic year close. So uh, we are not seeing signs of recession at this time. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that what, what I heard was away from that one line is that you um, the margin's really terrific. Obviously, with the Fed raising rates, things are good. And the number of new clients indicate to me that, that people are still starting businesses at, at this, with the same alacrity that they were before. They are starting businesses, and we're still getting good, solid sales. We're not seeing business losses go up, uh, and they're adding employees. The biggest thing on this little bit of a, a slight slowness in the new job growth is really because they can't find the people. It's not about, you know, a recession starting at this point as, as far as we can see. Yeah, well, how about, I was thinking, I couldn't find people, is it still COVID? We had the CEO of Humanoan who told us that COVID is no longer as bad, so to speak, as the flu. Is COVID playing a role, or where do these people go? Yeah, I, well, that's a good question, Jim. I don't, I don't know. We certainly hear from our clients that they're wondering where are the people. They're raising their wages. Uh, we saw that for the 12th consecutive month. Uh, you know, so I'm not sure, but it's not I don't think it's covid related at this point. I think it's a shift in the job market. More people want to do other things and they're getting good, high paid jobs where they can be remote or hybrid. They're not going into the service and leisure and hospitality as much as they were before. Well, I want to talk about service, leisure and hospitality. Uh, a lot of states have gotten very involved with payroll and uh, made a lot of different rules that make it so that an employer unsuspectedly may let go of an employee and not realize the ramifications. Has Paychex been helping people recognize all this new legislation that's made a lot of people more litigious? Because I think a lot of small business people are oblivious to this. Yeah, we have. And, you know, that's our fastest growing part of the business besides retirement right now is our HR outsourcing. And the HR outsourcing is growing. And the number one thing we get asked about is terminations and hiring. How can I hire better? How can I engage my my employees better? But also, how do I terminate if I have to do that? How do I do it right? Small businesses have a difficult time. They don't have the experience that a larger business does. So that's why our HR business is growing so quickly. And I want to urge small business people out there, listen to what he just said. You will make a mistake if you terminate. I promise you, you need the help of the paychecks. Now, Marty, uh, one line by, uh, by Mr. Veer. I just want to call it the mar- on the margin in the quarter. We made very deliberate choices in the fourth quarter to invest back in our client base among our, empl- our, our employees. Now, when you say invest back, what are you doing? Is that more technology? What are you, what are you investing back in? 
Yeah, there was a number of things, Jim. Because of how profitable we were in the fourth quarter and how strong it was, we invested back into our employees. There was some new bonus plans and some year-end bonuses. We gave dollars toward our charitable foundation that we have at the Paychex Charitable Foundation. We also dedicated some more dollars to marketing and to product development. So it were things that we decided that based on where we were, this was a good time to invest back in clients, employees, and the share owners of our business. Now, what, what does happen? Let's say the Fed does uh, do to three and a quarter on Fed funds. Uh, uh, what can, with all these new clients and all the business you do, what will the float look like? Because I, I like your company as, as a growth company, not necessarily off the float. But I don't mind getting yeah. some good floaters pay, for paychecks. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a tailwind. You know, Jim, these days with the balances up that clients uh, that we hold for clients, Every 25 basis points is worth about four and a half million dollars to us on an annual basis. Wow. Now, uh, the federal government, any of these new acts that they do, the, uh, the new um, their job, all the job bills, do they have things that will make once again that people need to go to paychecks because they're very, very complex? Well, I think there are some things there, but also they're coming to us and we're coming to our clients and prospects with things like government subsidies and how do they get those dollars. That's probably the biggest thing right now that we're seeing, not only because of forgiving the paycheck protection loans, but also employee retention tax credit service that we offer has done a lot. It has given an average small business of ours about $180,000 in pure subsidy that they can invest in hiring people, increasing wages, and maybe increasing benefits. And that's been a big help. So government regulations, we really use that to support our clients. That's terrific. Again, I know a lot of small business people, they're so busy, working so hard. That is a great point. And once again, I mean, to me, the stock at 114 down from 141, I'm going to say is ridiculous. Marty Musi, Chairman and CEO of Paychex. Great to have you on, sir. Thank you again. Thanks, Jim. Uh, you know, every time we've recommended this stock, every time it's got hit, it has worked. I'm doing it right now. Two and three quarter percent yield. Don't forget, Mad Money's back after the break. Coming up next. Let's make money together. What do we got? Kramer's bringing the thunder and answering your burning questions in today's edition of The Lightning Round. It is time. And then the Lightning Round is over. Are you ready? Keep that down. Let's go with Alan in Florida. Alan. Big booyah to you, Jimmy Chill. Right back at you. I was watching CNBC. I saw the uh, CEO of Exxon. He says that in the near future, most new car sales are going to be electric. I'm thinking we're going to need clean domestic energy to keep those cars charged. Uranium Energy Corp. What do you All think? Right, about I got to tell you, I agree with you, but there will not be a nuclear power plant built in this country. I've been doing so much work on this, uh, whether it be Three Mile, whether it be Sacramento Municipal, whether it be Fukushima, whether it be uh, Chernobyl. It ain't going to happen. They just won't let us do it, and it would be so right if they did. Let's go to Noel in Iowa. Noel. Yeah, hi. Um, the stock I'm calling about, they've been doing a lot for a while, but last few weeks have been just doing nothing but going down, but then it rebounded a little bit on Friday and earlier this week. Talking about NTR nutrients. It's another one of these fertilizer stories. I got to tell you, the way to play the farm is to do agco or deer. Agco or deer. I prefer deer right here. Brenda in Florida. Brenda. Hey, Jim, how are you? Ah, the chill man is good. How about you? 
I'm doing great. I uh, just wanted to tell you that um, you're in the restaurant industry. I am as well, and I'm opening my first cantina, Dognasium, in a market. Fantastic. Congratulations. That's great. Yeah, it'll be kind of neat. I know you have one in New York, and uh, you love that kind of food. So, anyways, my question for you is Oxy. I know that um, uh, Warren God, Buffett... Oxy's had too big a runoff of Warren Buffett. I didn't mean to interrupt it. Had too big a runoff of Warren Buffett. Let it come in. Those stocks are in for sale. You can buy them lower. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, be vigilant, but not too much of a downer. Kramer explains why right now could be a dangerous time in the market. Next. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. Jay is the man. Uh, Powell is making some does, remarks does, right now. Does Jay Powell not look like 10 years older? I mean, you know, i got to send him some of that hair care for men. I love this guy, okay, in person. But this thing's getting to him. It's getting to him, and we need, he needs our support. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. There comes a point in every bear market like this one where you need to be aware of being too negative. And I think that's close to where we are now. We know the market's got three problems, right? It's got runaway inflation that's caused by shortages and supply chain problems, war in Ukraine, and the Chinese government's ill-advised attempt to stamp out COVID with an incredibly tight lockdown. This parade of horribles has caused us to get hit with a double whammy of higher bond yields thanks to inflation and lower earnings thanks to the loss of key markets in China and Eastern Europe. Now, that's been the narrative. Now, here we are, almost in the second half of 2022, and I'm going to do something I've learned is essential if you want to try to make money in the stock market. I'm going to suggest that we need to be less negative than before when we conjured up this terrible porridge of obstacles, because one by one, they're being dealt with. When things change, you have to change your mind. You can't come up with excuses to maintain the same opinion. When you do that, you miss the forest of goodness through the miasma of dead trees. What exactly is changing? First, while we're still feeling the effects of the China's lockdown this quarter, as we know from Nike and as we'll hear from Mike Run tomorrow, which I think will be very bad, nobody seems to be acknowledging that China's already starting to open. That's huge for our companies that do business over there. I got some pictures of the restoration of indoor dining at some Chinese Starbucks this morning. Wow. Prompt me thinking, uh, this is not bad. Part of my negativity stemmed from the slam shut of so much of that country. If you want to look at China through the lens of one American company, I think the Starbucks reopening is a lot more illuminating than the weakness at Nike. Second, two large consumer packaged good companies today said on their conference call that the supply chain problems are really easing up. That's great news for the deflationistas. Third, as we talked about earlier, we're witnessing nothing short of a massive collapse in commodity prices. Aluminum, so important for construction oil, is down 40% from its March highs. Copper, huge for housing, down 25% of the same period. Silver, which is actually a key industrial commodity, has come down 24%. Now, not every commodity has been crushed. Corn, cotton, and soybeans are still up too much, but cotton's to come down a lot from its high. And we're getting spot reports that suggest that many of these are peaking. Cattle's fallen off, too, down 2% for the year. Good news for corn prices because cows go through that stuff like it's candy. Only oil and natural gas remain up big. 
though natural gas has fallen 33% from its highs three weeks ago. I wish I had an answer for that, but the war in Ukraine is, is, is it's intractable. However, as Carly Garner noted earlier, it's not like Russian oil production has stopped. They just have to sell it to countries that don't care about the sanctions, like China and India, something to keep in mind. The thing about all these positives is that the all-important bond market doesn't seem to care about them at all. Longer-term rates are up big from where they were a year ago, but if you look closely, you'll see that shorter-term rates, the ones more directly impacted by the Fed, are higher, too. That means bond traders believe the Fed will overshoot with its rate hikes because they don't recognize how much damage they're done to the economy. And I've got to tell you, if you listen to what RH had to say tonight, they should be listening to the damage. Well, look, we can't be sure of any of this. While that commodity basket's important, the Fed is mainly targeting unemployment, not the commodity basket. If we get two Labor Department numbers, not one, but two soft payrolls, that means the Fed can ease up and being too negative will turn out to be a huge mistake for you and for me, just like being too positive was six months ago. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Separate Smith starts now.